Guys, thank you so much. Welcome to the first LSE reading series of the season where we are not running the fireplace. I mean, it's nice. It's nice when we run it. Yeah, it's nice. And we get the ambient noise of people who have just played sports together and now are drinking large pitchers of beer. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our May 8th, 2018 event, which was a collaboration with the Feminist Press and three of their authors, Chaya Babu, YZ Chin, and Bridgette Davis. Remember, because we're very proud to be in Queens, I ask each of our authors to share a brief anecdote about Queens before they read from their work, so you're going to hear that in this episode. If you want to hear the panel discussion from the same event, just listen to our next episode. And now let's dive into LIC Bar, where I'm introducing our first reader, Chaya Babu. We're going to start off with Chaya Babu, guys. Chaya Babu is based in that other borough, Brooklyn. Um, she's a writer, journalist, educator, and healer. Her work's been featured in The Margins, Open City, BuzzFeed, CNN, The Feminist Wire, Huffington Post, and more. Now, it says you're completing a creative writing MFA at Pratt. Is that still true or is it done? It's like done. She's like done with her MFA at Pratt. And her thesis manuscript focused on diaspora loss and the intergenerational trauma of migration and exile. So like really lightweight topics. Chaya contributed to the anthology Go Home, which is amazing and it's here. It was published by Feminist Press just earlier this year, in March, in fact. Um, Chaya is also a member of the first class of the BuzzFeed Emerging Writer Fellows Program. She uh, is... Uh, got an amazing uh, biography, even outside of writing, of community activism and and wonderful work. She's a former member of the grassroots collective East Coast Solidarity Summer, which is a leadership and empowerment program for youth of South 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 Asian diaspora, Indo-Caribbean heritage, and has served on the board of directors for the South Asian Women's Collective. And she's a teaching artist with Community Word Project, which is a program in NYC public schools. So you know she's awesome. Let's give a big round of applause for Chaya Babu. Um, so the piece I'm going to be reading from is about growing up in Westchester. And I was thinking about, um, yes, no, it's related. Oh, Queens, really? yes. Okay, okay. Bring you back, bring you back. No, no, yeah, it's okay. I understand um, how like growing up in Westchester is like this weird, it's like, not the city, obviously, and people are very particular about that. But growing up there, it's even more. It's like you're a kid and you think the city is like on the other side of the world. And I just remember um, coming to Flushing to go to the Hindu temple with my family. Um, and like there's this, I don't know how many people here have been there, but there's this like huge bell thing. And my dad would pick up me and my sister and he'd like ring, ring the thing. Um, and to this day, I think like probably the best South Indian food in all of New York City is the Temple Canteen. So you should check it out if you want some good dosa. <laughs> um, that is my Queens story. I actually am from the other borough now, and so I'm not here that much. <laughs> um, okay, I am going to read from my piece um, called The Cul-de-Sac from this great anthology. Cul-de-Sac is French. In, in America, it signifies a circular dead end or blind alley. Ours, Briar's Corner, fell in order with the others like it. 
strung at uneven, uneven intervals along Carlton Avenue, like charms hanging from an unclasped bracelet. No two are exactly the same, yet they form a pattern nonetheless. Up from Iron Ridge to Doxbury Lane, down to Fox Run and Woodsford Bend. Similar to its sisters, the cul-de-sac opens with reserve, tight at first, the, constrict, the constricted straight of a globular jug, making way then for what lies beyond the widening. The chiaroscuro of weathered asphalt raised slightly in the center where a pewter disc covering a manhole serves as the anchor between four houses set back from the through street. The inner homes are partly shielded from view by numbers one and two, which sit perched on the corners facing Carlton at the inlet. Each comes with its black tin mailbox affixed to the foot of a driveway paved smooth and the gilding of verdant landscaping. Over time, the Myers planted a rose bush at the cusp of their yard and the cement curb, the Callahans, a wall of white pines marking the rim of their property, and my parents, a short, solitary cherry tree that blooms and fades each spring and sheds its blossoms on an island of wood chips amidst a million spears of grass. In kinder, <clears throat> excuse me, in kindergarten, before the flowering tree took root out front, I'd get off the minibus at noon and ring the doorbell at the mudroom. Every day, the housekeeper would answer the door. This was the woman my parents had hired to keep the house spotless while my mother wasn't there to wipe our fingerprints off the cream-colored formica cupboards. Every day I'd ask, is my mom home? She's at work, she'd say. We'd stand like this for a moment, she in the doorframe, I a step down and still outside on the porous concrete stoop, clutching the straps of my backpack as if I might turn on my Converse high-top heels if her answer was no. Instead, I'd look up at her, my face at her hip, both of us with blank stares. She'd shuffle aside so I could enter. I spent a lot of time across the cul-de-sac at Jessica Myers. Her house was a mirror image of ours, contemporary 80s angular monstrosities that nobody wants now. Her mom stayed home during the day. It wasn't until years later that I realized how much time it must have taken Cheryl to coat her lashes in that lacquer and feather her big blonde hair. And to go where? Her soft leather handbag, large enough to fit my mother's purse as well as the hard otoscope case she pulled down from the closet whenever I had a sore throat had a rabbit's foot dangling from the zipper and sat on the kitchen table next to a ring of keys. Lots of keys that jingled in tandem with the clack of her stilettos and opened who knows what, but there were so many that I inherently assumed her life was as large as the things she carried. After school, Cheryl drove us places if we had places to go. In the car, she listened to cassette tapes of Black Box and Technotronic and Janet Jackson. Jessica would dance in her seat to it. Pump, pump the jam, pump it up, while your feet are stumping. Mouthing the words, her torso arching forward and back in sharp staccato movements to the beat, her seatbelt pulling taut with the curve of her body. Together they went into the city some days to take classes at Broadway Dance Center. Chaya, her mom called to me in the back seat one day, glancing briefly in the rearview mirror through her gigantic tortoiseshell sunglasses. What kind of music do you like, sweetie? Um, I said, trailing off. I didn't know. I was six. Through the Myers, I learned the ways I was wrong. In their yard, which Jessica's dad, Jack, tended to routinely, we ran through sprinklers and ate hard pretzels and drank pink lemonade with ice cubes clinking against the glasses. They ate salad before their meals and put salt and pepper on everything. I had never seen salad tongs before. The floors in their living room were silver gray tile as opposed to warm cedar covered with oriental rugs like in our house. And the walls in Jessica's room were pale lavender. On her tufted carpet that reminded me of Pussy Willow Catkins, her mother would blow dry Jessica's hair after giving her a bath until it was fluffy, a halo of spun gold cotton candy. We were small and quiet compared to them. My father didn't take care of the lawn, which browned in patches and had haphazard sproutings of weeds. 
His hands didn't hold baseballs or wrenches or dirt. Day and night, they scalpeled and sutured the flimsy walls of veins and sketched the vessels of the, and sketched the vessels of the human body on sheets of white paper on Saturdays. He came home late, too late to tickle or joke. He sometimes read us the sneetches in bed before sitting cross-legged with a tiny tattered prayer book in his dark-lined palms. Jack got home by dinner, beaming, smelling like cigar smoke and suede from the factory he owned. He scooped up Bradley, still a baby, and roared, Who's my boy? He built them a wooden swing set, but also helped my sister Reka with her math homework, though I'm not sure she needed it. Reka, who basked in the glory of the Myers' easy sophistication, who joined jazz classes with recitals for which she wore sparkly midriff-bearing spandex, who liked Donnie Wahlberg just like Jessica, and so the two of them shared that, my crush on Joey McIntyre signifying some obvious lack on my part. She was my big sister, and yet somehow Jessica took her. She declared, Reka is my sister, and nobody protested, not even the parents. They just laughed. Despite the fact that Jessica and I swirled globs of paint on opposite sides of the easel at school to make identical puke-brown masterpieces and ran across the asphalt circle to each other the second the minibus drove off on most days, in the mornings she insisted on holding Reka's hand. I walked alone. When I soon discovered I was suited to neither gymnastics nor ballet, or rather I sensed something erroneous about my brown body and a leotard, I excused myself from the carpool. My afternoons were passed dwarfed in the Briarcliff house, its high sloping ceilings and faint echo through the hollowness of the green carpet room. I watched Ghost Rider on the television from my parents' bed, sat in awe as my grandfather built deft inventions out of discarded wires in the basement, or retreated into the pages of R.L. Stein books on the dense mob cup pile in my room. To this, my mother said, it's not that you're not talented, you're just lazy. Still, if it was a bone-cutting New York winter, the kind that had kids had the kids from all six houses walking backward to the bus stop in the mornings to keep the wind from whipping at our small faces, or if it was raining particularly hard, Cheryl would pick us up at the mouth of the cul-de-sac where we got dropped off starting in first grade. We'd scurry out, scout, scurry out of the big bus's accordion doors and see the boxy white Volvo parked there with the smack of its black wipers in the wetness, waiting just yards from the safe, dry havens of actual shelter. Once I just stood there, only for a minute, but nonetheless, Reka and Jessica tumbled into the car next to a bundled-up Bradley, slick, heaving, relieved to be undercover at last. Well, Chaya, are you getting in or what? Cheryl asked, peering out with raised brows. The storm poured around me, splashing onto the plush floor of the Volvo. You can stand here, but we're gonna go. Drenched, I had the lurking worry she might not make the, make the three-second detour along the arc of the cul-de-sac to take me home. Through some odd stroke of fate, Cheryl's last name was Babu. Romanian roots, apparently. For years, Jessica obsessed over this fact, staking, claim, staking her claim to some sort of meaningful connection to us, or more accurately, to Reka, that ran deeper than the cul-de-sac. We're family, is what the adults would say. And since Bradley wandered through our front door frequently to have my mom feed him a bowl of cereal, and I sat with the Myers at the town pool in the summers drinking Capri Sun from their cooler, it's not so much that I found this family a false construct as much as I could not fathom my belonging to it. By fourth grade, even these ties felt tenuous, at least as far as Jessica and I were concerned. We were not friends. Things had started to matter, like fair, wispy hair and whether your clothes were picked by certain kinds of moms. Mine wore white coats and, if something more formal was called for, saris that smelled like suitcases. No matter the occasion, her long ponytail, tied, lo tied loosely at the nape of her neck, was held in place by clear, colorful balls that only kids should wear. Walking to our respective homes one day after getting off the bus, Jessica quipped, hardly looking at me, you're wearing that? As if we were getting dressed to go somewhere and I was weighing outfit options versus it being the end of a school day. 
This caught me off guard. Yes, I was awkward and unpopular, and she had succeeded from the get-go in securing the affection of a cool older girl who just happened to be my sister. But this, it was something else. I wondered how it had grown. I knew the seeds were planted early, nurtured by my silence and the shame they all heaped upon me for my coarse, unruly mane, ashy knees darker than Reka's, a unibrow and a dusky shadow over my top lip even when I should have been too little to be ugly. But when had it borne such fruit? I had on magenta jeans and a white button-down shirt with little cowboy boots sewn along the placket. And what I thought was a clever move, I wore my own brown cowboy boots with a stitch design on the toe to match. Under Jessica's gaze, I wished I had chosen something else. What, I couldn't be sure, just not the Western-themed getup. She still ended up at our house sometimes. Reka, will you do my makeup? She asked one night. They crouched together in the narrow alcove near the door of the bedroom that Reka and I shared. Just enough light reaching the full-length mirror through their huddled bodies. Oh my god, I'm going to make your blue eyes look so pretty, Reka said. Jessica sat with her legs folded beneath her, frozen, looking up and her mouth stretched downward as if her cheekbones were in the way. Reka, 13 then, tried to draw a line along or through Jessica's bottom lashes in a way that I thought must be painful. In this moment, the redness of the area immediately around her eyes reminded me of how raw her mother looked in the few fleeting instances I had caught her barefaced in the morning, once with what I swore was a bandage over her nose and the surrounding area puffed and purple. When Reka finished with the pencil, she took out the mascara. I was used to this part, but it got me every time. You have such long lashes, she told Jessica. They're like perfect. Reka glanced at me so quickly it was almost imperceptible, but she did and I knew why. Jessica might have been the pretty Maureen Peel to my position as the cul-de-sac, as the cul-de-sac's Pecola breed love with her shimmering hair and even the way her top lip didn't fully exist or touch the bottom one if she didn't make a concerted effort. The opposite of what my sister called my big black people lips. But she did not have eyelashes. They were short, sparse, and the same color as her skin. I was the hairy one. And along with this gross misfortune, I was also the one with the lashes, ones you could actually see. But I swallowed the tide of bile that welled in my core. Even I wasn't stupid enough to believe that such a concession was grantable. Keep it going for Chaya. That was so great. I appreciate that you enacted singing the song. But for now, let's move on to... YZ Chin. Now, YZ Chin is the author of Though I Get Home, which was published by Feminist Press just last month, right? In April. Brand new. It's so new. It has that new book smell right over there. It is the premier winner of the Louise Merriweather First Book Prize. She's also written two poetry chapbooks out or forthcoming from Anonymous Press and Dancing Girl Press. Born and raised in Taiping, Malaysia, she now lives in New York. Which borough? Okay, Brooklyn. She works by day <laughs> as a software engineer and, and, yes, and writes by night. Um, I will say that in awarding YZ Chin the inaugural Louise Merriweather First Book Prize, the judge, Anna Castillo, called her novel complex and intimate. Uh, Louise Merriweather herself says it's poignant, like an arrow piercing one's heart. And it got a starred review in Kirkus, which is like really nice. Just FYI. Um, 
Kirkus said it's a haunting, surprising, and rebellious collection that contains multitudes. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from YZ. Let's give her some applause. Good? Yeah? Good? Okay, great. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I live in Manhattan. <laughs> so, and this is relevant for my Queen's anecdote. Um, this, this is a true story, by the way. So my Queen's anecdote is um, I had just moved to New York from Chicago. Um, so it's brand new. And one day I was standing on a, a street corner, like a curb. I was, um, I guess it was dark, it was night, and I guess it was in the well-lit section of the street. So I was putting my arm out, trying to get a cab. And I see this cab with the, you know, available sign slow down and come towards me. I'm like, yes, I'm gonna get home. It's pretty late, I wanna be home. And the cab slows near me. The driver sort of looks out the open window and he says, oh, I'm not going to Queens. And he drives off. <laughs> Does anyone not know why people are laughing or gasping? Oh, I see, it's a room full of people acquainted with the stereotypes of New York. Awesome. Uh, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, so I was new to New York. I had no idea what was going on. So I was like, I don't want to go to Queens either. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, and then, you know, I eventually figured it out. And then I was like, sort of impressed. I'm like, oh, have I? Is this an improvement? Like, people have gone from asking, where are you from? To like, assuming I'm from somewhere. Like, is that, is that good? <laughs> But um, joke's on me because, uh, you know, a few years later, I married someone who's born and raised in Queens, sitting right there from College Point, Queens. Uh, so, yeah, I guess maybe the cab driver is a fortune teller. I don't know. But, yeah, I am going to Queens now. Um, so that's my anecdote. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm going to read from my book. Um, I'm going to read a, a story from my book set in my hometown in Malaysia. Um, the story is called Bright and Clear. Mother asked the question I had been dreading all morning when she finally admitted that we were lost. She started with a sigh. Lost again. I just have such a terrible sense of direction. So, you still a lesbian? Unfortunately, I'm still seeing Mina, I said, stressing words where appropriate. I can't just change who I am, you know, much as I'd love to. Oh, really? You used to date boys in secondary school. Now you date girls. So, if you can change one way, you can change the other way, right? Maybe we should stop, I said, not wanting to meander further down unfamiliar little mud roads. But my mother misunderstood. Her lips clamped and her butt shifted on the driver's seat. The car moved on. Pebbles sent flying by rubber wheels hit the underside of the old Praton Saga and clanged gratingly. Mother, tapping the steering wheel, told me to help her find our way. Annoyed that she had been predictable enough to ask what I dreaded her asking, I said, if dad were here, we wouldn't be lost. Well, we're going to see my parents, not his, she replied. He always drove before, I said, and was immediately unsure of my point. Outside the car was an army of orderly rubber trees, each ringed by neat diagonal wounds that bled dirty white. 
like the eraser in my pencil box from when I first learned to write. You think those are the same trees we passed earlier? Mother asked. I think we should ask the woman for directions. Mother looked at the advancing figures and shook her head. She's Malay. So? So? Why would she know where a Chinese cemetery is? La? If we were in a Taman and this woman asked you where the nearest masjid is, wouldn't you be able to answer her? Mother slowed the car. The woman paid no attention, but her goat looked at us briefly. I cranked down my window. It was squeaky. God, can you tell us where the Chinese cemetery is? She looked up, her face impassive. She lifted a finger, twisted her body, and pointed. Then, wordlessly, she adjusted her tudong and prepared to leave. Nice goat, I said. Goat? What? Her eyeballs pushed out. Not mine, la. Why would I have a goat? We wound our way up hilly slopes and weaved through rows and rows of gravestones, some more erect than others. The sun scorched us. Mother carried the fruits, incense, and cold roast pork. I carried large bags of folded paper money, fingers massaging the lighter in my pocket. Mother walked in front and got us lost among the tombstones. She sweated and swiveled her head about, trying to find my grandparents. Ow! She stubbed her toe on someone else's gravestone, Mr. Zito's. Sorry, she mumbled to the dirt ground. She turned around to look at me sadly. You're right, if your father were here, we wouldn't be lost. Her concession made me feel so guilty, I almost believed that she had said it to play victim. But her bowed back reminded me that I had been rude to her when she had called me almost every night when I was in London. She had wanted to talk about the divorce and her menopause, but I had no patience for her then. I did not want to be reminded of being a woman. I took a couple of quick steps and held her elbow. I see them over there. Like every year before this, I silently rememorized my grandparents' given names and swore never to forget them. Grandfather's name was much more vivid than grandmother's. The paint had not had as much time to chip away. We went through the motions, and it was hard to tell how upset I felt, traditions being the great neutralizer of emotions in my case. Around us, the hill swayed and slid with the combined weight of all its graves. Many pyres burned elsewhere, lit by other families. Each family followed its own customs. Some ate fruits meant for the ghosts lingering about, while others warned against touching any food. Grass tried to grow everywhere and over and under everyone. The swimming fire and smoke finally made my eyes water. Lifting my arm, I beckoned mother to join me where I sat on the neighboring gravestone. I told her about that day when I was all alone in our old house. Rain hammered on the zinc roof of our neighbor's chicken coop, and the racket somehow made me conscious that I was bored. I started rifling through my father's filing cabinet. You know, the one he keeps our tech stuff in? I looked at mother. She shook her head, and my disdain rose again. How clueless she had been about her own life. There had been reams of mortgage documents, electricity bills, bank statements, train schedules, such things. And underneath them all, 
wedged against the back corner, was a black plastic bag with handles. Inside, I'd found about a dozen VCDs. Their covers showed me what my father desired sexually, and when I came across the schoolgirls in uniform, I had to think about my blue pinafores. How could I have not? I told my mother how I sat down in front of our TV and watched most of Dad's collection. I told her that I'd found myself turned on, and when I got up to go to the bathroom, I'd looked down to see moist patches. It was a horrible story. I didn't deliver the punchline, but it was there, evident and blatantly false. I was queer because of Dad. I watched Mother's face. I wasn't sure what I wanted to see. Only later in life would I learn to regard my preference of anger over sadness as problematic. Right then, surrounded by graves, all I wanted was for my mother to hate my father. Mother got up and went back to the grave we were visiting. She closed her eyes and started whispering to her parents, and suddenly I was terrified. What would I do when it was my turn? I was ignorant of the ceremonial steps performed in cemeteries. On our way back, we got lost again. For the fourth or fifth time, we passed the rows of rubber trees, more orderly than graves and human lives. I didn't stop mother when she started telling me all about Taiping, as if I were a tourist. How it almost became the capital of Malaysia before the honor went to a nowhere place at the cross streams of two dirty rivers. How Taiping had fallen from glory, its claim to fame, said relics of a colonial past. How that confused its dwellers, made them unsure of how to gossip, how to be friendly, what kind of food to like whether to be full of hope or devoid of it. A car pulled up next to us, and its driver asked if we knew how to get to the clock tower, the oldest one in the country. Mother, suddenly cheerful, said, you're going the wrong way, Gostan, Gostan, which is a, a Malaysian like um, pigeon word, I guess, for go or like turn back the way you came. It was apparently derived from go astern, from sailing. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, more applause, please, for Wise Chin. Yes. Um, you got to pick up, though I get home, this collection of stories you may have noticed as she was reading. It's like, wow, this, this is really wonderful story and such a deftly told like story of a relationship between these two people and then all of a sudden it gets so much more intense and so like the, her, the stories really sneak up on you in these amazing ways it's it's an incredible book so thank you and thank you for letting us know that taxi drivers are assholes and also fortune tellers i mean everyone has redeeming qualities like that all right let's give a big round of applause please to chaya nyz for the amazing first half. Um, thank you guys. We are going to have one more reader and then our panel discussion. And right now we have Bridgette Davis. Bridgette Davis is the author of the forthcoming memoir. Ask her about it. The World According to Fanny Davis, which will be coming out next year, early in the year, guys. 
and the novels Into the Go Slow, which is here for sale, published by the Feminist Press in 2014, as well as Shifting Through Neutral. She's director of the Sydney Harmon Writer in Residence Program and professor of journalism and creative writing at Baruch College C <coughs> CUNY. CUNY. Mm, someone had some whiskey. <laughs> I was just thinking, my goodness, she's busy. You direct, you direct a residence program and you're a professor of journalism. And how much do you teach? How many? That's crazy. You guys, okay. You got to give her a lot of love because it's the end of the semester right now. I want to point out, this is interesting, I found uh, as I was digging into your past, that in 2014, I, get, I think Time Out New York was smart in 2014 because in addition to like four other LIC Reading Series alumni, you were named one of 10 New York authors to read right now. Hurry up! Read now and read forever. Um, which just means like, Time Out New York knows where it's at. We got some good readers here. And one of them is here tonight. And you're going to hear her. Um, Afropunk calls Into the Ghost Slow, which we have here, richly written and authentic and a remarkable tale that powerfully addresses the challenges that arise while on the search for the often hidden and misconstrued answers to life. It, and it delivers. That sounds big, but I swear it delivers. Um, also, I love this. The website Women Action in the Media says of Into the Go Slow, set in the mid-1980s, this novel defies genre. It's a love story. It's a mystery. It's a social commentary. It's a coming-of-age story. It's historical fiction. And it's fantastic. That's right. Let's give a big round of applause for Bridget Davis. Good. I like you. <laughs> Let's give her a hand. So, thank you so much for being here. I love Feminist Press. I do. I really do. Such a great place to like publish your work and be part of a community. How much better can it get? Right? Yay to Feminist Press. So, I have a queen story, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Like this just happened recently. My friend was visiting from San Francisco and um, you know, San Francisco is a really great foodie town and everything. And, but she was really excited, uh, Leslie, to be in Brooklyn. She's like, oh my God, because we live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And she's like, it's so great to be in hipster Brooklyn. She just <laughs> loved it. And so it was time to eat. I'm like, we can order in. And I'm very excited because I know there are like three or four really cool restaurants in my neighborhood that I can vouch for. And I'm like, would you like French? And she's like, nah. I'm like, okay, Thai? And she's like, not in the mood. I'm like, oh God, I'm running down. <laughs> Only two left. I'm like, uh, Indian? She's like, uh, no. I'm like, ramen? Because that's it. <laughs> and she's like, actually, I would love Italian. So my husband and I looked at each other, we're like, okay. Um, we don't know any Italian <laughs> restaurants in our neighborhood, but that's okay, we have Yelp. And so we got on and we found this place. It was a trattoria something, something. And it was um, only like a mile and a half from our home. So we're like, cool. So we order from it and they come quickly. The food is fantastic. Like really, it's so good. Like the like, 
linguine bongole is delicious and the ziti was happening. It was fantastic. So my friend's very happy and she's taking photos of it. And she's like, oh, and I want to tell all my friends about like how I had the best Italian ever in Brooklyn. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I'm like, shoot. And um, so she's like, uh, so I want to be really like clear and tell everybody exactly where in Brooklyn. Because is this, yeah, yeah. I'm like, because it's not quite Bed-Stuy. And then I'm like, sort of like probably Williamsburg. Let me check. And then I go, Bridgewood? And she goes, where in Brooklyn is Ridgewood? And I said, it's in Queens? And she said, oh, I get it, I get it. So the best Italian food in Brooklyn is in Queens. And it was, so yay, Ridgewood. Anyway, okay, so, all right. So this Into the Go Slow is a novel about um, a young woman who uh, decides to travel to Nigeria in her big sister's footsteps because her sister Ella died there mysteriously four years before. And she's trying to find out what happened. Um, she is told, the family was told that the sister died in a car accident. But she can't rest until she goes to kind of figure this out for herself. So the excerpt, excerpt that I'm going to read to you is... Um, just at this pivotal moment in the story when the little sister, Angie, has been in Nigeria in Lagos for a week. Has anyone ever been in Lagos? Okay, so it's not, <laughs> hasn't been that easy. It's been a little crazy for her and she, it's just not working out. And at this point, she's thinking this is hell and it's, I'm not finding what I had hoped I would find and I, I think I'm just gonna go home. So that's where we are in the story. I think that's all you need to know. It's 1987, by the way. Definitely a historical novel. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> okay, I just have to own it, right? Yeah, I just have to own it. Okay. Historical fiction. Yeah. All right, here we go. She made her way up the road to the taxi park where the sun now shone on lingering puddles from the morning's heavy rain. She climbed to the back of a waiting car and directed the driver to take her to the airport. What else was there to do? Angie felt deflated, as though she had failed a test, blown a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. She did not want to be here anymore, a lone woman chasing after a ghost in a harsh, lonely place. Traffic stalled. As cars inched along the road, she saw that it was not the normal go-slow, causing the log jam. It looked like a bundle fallen from a rickety lorry, but as the driver got closer, Angie realized what it was. A body, splayed out, lying in the slow lane of traffic. Cars were swerving around it. It was a woman, a foot still holding its long sandal, head in a grotesque twist. Angie screamed, stop! The driver turned around. What is it, please? She pointed to the woman's body, struggling for words. Right there, her. The driver turned around. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, ah, yes, it is an unfortunate part of Nigerian life. He maneuvered around the corpse behind other cars. I'm afraid you get used to it. Suddenly, Angie pushed the driver in his back. You have to help her. 
She pushed him again, so hard, his chin hit the steering wheel. Do something. He turned to face her. Ah, ah, you bitch. What is your fucking problem? You have to do something, she repeated. The driver drove on in angry silence. She turned around, eyeing the dead woman through the rear window. Please do something, she begged, heart racing. He ignored her, drove past the log jam, and once the traffic opened up, he pulled over to the edge of the road and hit the brakes. Get out, he said. Come down, he ordered her. Get out of my fucking taxi. What? Angie felt confused. He pushed her against the back door. I am telling you, come down. I didn't mean to. The driver got out, grabbed Angie's arm. She screamed as he pulled her from the back, throwing her bag behind, grabbing her duffel. She stumbled onto the narrow shoulder as he got back in the taxi, slammed his door, and screeched away. Cars whizzed by. Four lanes of traffic stood between her and the exit on the opposite side. Desperate, she waved her hands in hopes that someone would stop. But the cars were flying too fast, as if grateful to be past the inconvenient roadkill, speeding to make up for lost time. Angie stood on the highway's edge. Gravel flew up, hitting her legs and arms. She could be stuck here for hours, forever. Her chest throbbed with panic as she began walking along the shoulder. The sun prickled her skin. Was this what happened to Ella? Was she caught on a road like this, desperate? She thought of her sister Denise's admonition. Do not let anything happen to you over there. I cannot bear the thought of delivering more bad news to Mama. Please, God, Angie thought, please. I do not want to die like Ella. Against the sun's glare, she thought she saw tiny figures making their way toward her. She stopped, stood still. The figures grew larger, and as they got closer, she could see that, yes, it was a man, a woman, and a boy. They walked in single file along the edge, closer and closer, approaching. Please, she yelled against the traffic's steady roar. How do you get off this highway? There is no flyover, yelled the man. You must cross. He nodded toward the traffic. We will cross with you. But there must be an exit on this side, she yelled back. Miles away. This is best to just cross here. All three of them were without shoes. The man gently nudged the boy's back. Go, he said. The boy, who couldn't have been older than 10, looked up at Angie with saucer eyes, then ran onto the highway. Angie gasped as the boy deftly dodged oncoming cars. When he made it across, he waved at them. My God, she said, I can't do that. The man turned to Angie. His narrow face was all hard angles, but his eyes were sympathetic. You must make your mind blank and just go, he offered. I will show you. He created a rhythmic momentum with his shoulder blades, like a girl entering a double dutch jump rope game, then darted into the fray. Aghast, Angie watched as he wove between zooming cars before making it to the other side. He waved wildly at her, or perhaps at the other woman, who stood beside her staring straight ahead. Cars blew by. The boy and the man both waved. 
The man cupped his hands to his mouth and yelled something that got lost in the wind. Cars passed and the boy and man disappeared, reappeared. The man gestured for them to come, come. Cars flew by, come, come. The woman, uttering no words, dashed across the highway. Her wrapper flapped in the breeze as a van barely missed her. She moved adroitly between oncoming traffic and leaped gracefully onto the embankment like a modern dancer. Once across, the woman, too, beckoned for Angie to come. The sun was like a laser aimed at Angie's face. The man, woman, and child appeared and reappeared between the whoosh of traffic and the relentless heat mingled with her terror, making her lightheaded. Angie could no longer be sure. Was it Ella prodding her on? Was her sister telling her to come? Did she want Angie to join her? More cars blew by. Come, come. She looked straight ahead at the disappearing, reappearing woman. White dots floated across her vision. Yes, it was Ella. If she made it across, there her sister would be. The Buddhist chant Ella had taught her came to her. Nam Mioho Renge Kyo. Angie threw her bags to the side of the road. She moved her shoulders in rhythm with Nam Mioho Renge Kyo. Nam Mioho Renge Kyo. Staring ahead, focused on Ella's face, she yelled, I'm coming, I'm coming. She counted one, two, three. Suddenly, a car swerved at her. So close, spewing gravel hit her face with force. She jumped back. More cars passed at breakneck speed. She tried again, moving her shoulders in rhythm, but the chant in her head disappeared. The moment had died. She couldn't do it. She waved to the others. They beckoned from across the highway, all three of them. She shook her head. No, hoped they could see her gesture, knew they couldn't. She waved goodbye again, exhausted from the effort, her legs untrustworthy. She sat on the highway's edge. Her face hurt. She hugged her knees. Soon enough, the man and woman and boy moved on, shrinking figures making their way up the exit ramp. She thought the boy waved at her one last time. She regretted her own fear, yet the terror sat with her, an unmovable force as the sun loomed overhead. Parched, she longed for water. How long could she sit here before someone stopped to help? Even though it was barely midday, the thought of darkness forced her to rise. She grabbed her bags and ran along the road as traffic whipped past and flying debris attacked her limbs. Her hands dripped with sweat and the handle of her duffel kept sliding from her grip. Walk, rest, walk, rest, walk, rest. Mercifully, she finally glimpsed a sign for the next exit. She hurried on, feeling blood drip down her legs and a welt forming on her face. Minutes later, she was making her way clumsily up the exit ramp, its incline, a small mountain under the weight of her bags. She trudged to the first building she saw, a post office. She walked inside, the interior's dark coolness of relief. She headed straight for a nearby bench and collapsed. She closed her eyes and waited for her heartbeats to slow. In time, she opened her eyes and searched until she spotted it. She stood, dragged her bag across the floor. 
I want to call the United States, she said to a young woman perched behind a desk. The woman had drawn in dramatic eyebrows. She handed Angie a scrap of paper and instructed her to write down the number she wanted to call. She pointed to a row of phone booths without doors and told Angie to enter number four. Inside was a large gray telephone with no dials. Angie sat on the little wooden seat jutting out from the wall and watched as the woman attempted to make the connection from her main switchboard. Moments passed. The little booth was hot, stuffy. Finally, the woman arched her exaggerated eyebrows, nodded her head, and said, You can pick up now. She picked up the receiver. Hello, Mama? She could hear her words echoing back. There was a delay in the transmission, a beat, before she heard her mother say in a formal voice, You have reached the McKenzie residence. No one is in to take your call right now. Please leave a message after the beep. When had her mother gotten an answering machine? <laughs> beep! The sound felt like an affront, jarring and discordant. Feeling the pressure, Angie opened her mouth to speak, but nothing came out. She hung up. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens. <laughs>